You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. The heart of where innovation, money, and power collide in Silicon Valley and beyond. This is Bloomberg Technology with Caroline Hyde and Ed Ludlow. I'm Caroline Hyde at Bloomberg's World Headquarters in New York. And I'm Ed Ludlow in San Francisco. This is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up, Microsoft, Alphabet, AMD. Look, they struggle to meet high AI expectations. We'll break down the earnings reports and discuss just how these big tech giants can prove themselves down the road. Plus, the $55 billion question, should Musk's payday go away? A Delaware judge thinks so and has voided the Tesla's CEO's compensation package. We speak to the lawyer that beat Musk in court. And the heads of five of the largest social media platforms are before Congress today, testifying about what their companies are doing to keep kids safe online. We're live from D.C. later in the hour. The three big AI names have reported their earnings. Get right to AMD. It is concern about their outlook for the current period and a lack of rebound in end markets, an echo from what we heard with Intel. And at the same time, their AI accelerator, the MI300, ramped really well in the quarter gone, and they exceeded that guidance they'd given us that there will be a $400 million contribution to revenues from the uh, MI300. So what's going on here? Because the stock is down. Later today, we will speak to Lisa Sue, the CEO of AMD. AMD and work out what the AI story is here. Similarly with Alphabet, parent of Google, the market zeroed in on the miss in the core search business, but also a worry about margins. Interesting because the cloud outperformed. If you look at operating income for the cloud in the quarter gone, double what the street was looking for. And when I spoke to Ruth Porat, she said very matter-of-factly, there is a contribution from generative AI to what's happening in cloud as well as our efforts to cut costs. Perhaps the winner of the three, Microsoft. Growth in the Azure unit, 30% year-on-year, up sequentially from the prior quarter, a 6% contribution to growth in cloud from AI, according to the CFO, Amy Hood, in an interview with Bloomberg. But we're down 1.2%. This was a high, high bar quarter. We knew what Microsoft had invested. We wanted to see evidence that we got a boost in sales on software and a boost in sales on cloud. And we got that, but the market 
had very high expectations, Caroline. I mean, to have cloud revenues up 24% year on year and that still not meet those lofty goals. Let's just talk to an investor and really what her reaction is. Ayoko Yashioka, we're pleased to say, joins us. Senior Portfolio Consultant at Wealth Enhancement Group, holding both Google and Microsoft, among many other names. And Ayoko, the... the overall feeling is that these companies delivered but not enough to meet the anticipation. Do you think, let's talk about Microsoft first and foremost, that detail we got, the 6% increase in revenue because of AI, was it just that she wasn't able to paint it forward for this coming quarter that disappointed? I don't necessarily think so. Uh, and thanks again for having me today. Um, you know, these stocks were up substantially uh, year to date up over 8%. Um, you know, Microsoft itself was up over uh, or near up 70% on a you know trailing 12-month basis. So expectations have been high sort of going into this quarter. Um, and, you know, for Microsoft, they were able to at least quantify the impact of AI um, on the growth of cloud, unlike uh, Alphabet or Google, um, which I think is part of the differential here in terms of why the stocks are um, behaving as they are. Yeah, Alphabet, less detail on really what contribution AI will have, particularly on search. Ayako, what about the capital expenditure that both companies are having to give at the moment, the investment to bring about the AI prowess? Is it too much? Uh, I don't know if it's too much. It is definitely what is needed. I mean, uh, NVIDIA has talked about the pricing of their chips, and both um, Alphabet and Microsoft talked about CapEx increasing substantially in 2024 relative to 2023. And so that will be an extra spend by both of these um, into data centers and servers, and that's going to you know help build out the infrastructure in which AI and, and all the applications can be built on. Iarco, Dan Ives at Wedbush has this note out that Satya Nadella delivered a masterpiece that should be hung up in the Louvre. The stock is down 1.2%. Expectations were high, as, as I went on about earlier. I guess the question from someone like you that holds a decent chunk of Microsoft shares is, did you see enough in the financials to keep buying into the stock long term and believe in the AI story? I think in the near term, Ed, you know, we can, we obviously expected a little bit of a pullback. As I said, the stocks uh, really reflected a lot of um, high expectations. And so, you know, in, with any pullback, there is an opportunity. I think it would be nice to have uh, the stock pullback additionally uh, in order to have you know, new entry points. Um, and, you know, for most people, I think Microsoft is um, already a core position. So we just have to let the dust settle um, on the stock, at least in the near term. Ayako, hey, Alphabet parent of Google is down severely. And, and we're trying to understand what the focus is here. Initially, it seemed like the anxiety was the core search business. Then people started talking about margins. But if you take into account the one-time charge from headcount reduction and cost, margins look a bit better. And on an operating income basis, the clouds did great. You know, they're saying, well, we think Gen AI is contributing here. Why are they not getting credit for that cloud story? 
Sure. And, you know, they focused on operating income efficiencies over the last year. And I think that's been a great story for Alphabet. And, you know, they've delivered on those promises. I think the issue with Alphabet is really just getting out there and telling the story and quantifying the impact of AI into the cloud. I mean, and, and you know, Microsoft talked about um, how there was a 6% contribution. And despite the spend that they are doing in order to broaden out that infrastructure, they also saw some leverage in their um, operating income there. So we'd love to see more detail from Alphabet um, in terms of how that's going to come about. Perhaps we'll get that once they launch uh, Gemini Ultra later this year, which will you know, really uh, impact uh, Alphabet's uh, Google Cloud division. Iyako Yoshioka, Senior Portfolio Consultant at Wealth Enhancement. Great to have you on the show across so many earnings. Thank you. The next earnings on the dock is AMD. Let's break down those results with Pierre Ferragou, heads up the Global Technology Infrastructure Research Team at New Street Research. Pierre, great to see you. You know, for me, the story on AMD is, is which is more concerning or important to the market, right? The outlook for the current period, which makes us worried about broad end markets, or the progress they made on MI300, because they showed a lot of progress. Where's your head at? Well, if you look at the stock um, over, like, um, let's say, a two, three-year horizon, um, very clearly, the way I look at it is that the CPU business is going to stabilize, Intel is coming back, that market is going to balance out, and really AMD managed to build over the last five years a very sustainable challenger position. So not much is going to happen, but it's a very strong, very solid base. Then you know, like the the, the embedded uh, part of the business, the xilinx part of the business is very cyclical, and it's going down at the moment. It's really coming down. It hasn't reached the trough yet, but the trough is in line of sight. And then you have this amazing opportunity in AI. Um, the way I read the situation today is that AMD is the only alternative to NVIDIA with like a relatively general purpose, uh, very similar GPU architecture which means that for all these people who, number one, uh, find it difficult to get enough NVIDIA chips, and number two, want to have an alternative supplier, AMD with the MI300, is probably a no-brainer. And that ramp is fascinating. And so we are talking um, AMD potentially being, if AMD does 3.5 or $4 billion of uh, GPU revenues uh, this year, that means at the end of the year, they will get five, maybe $6 billion of run rate. Because they're going to become what NVIDIA was like, what, 18 months ago? Um, maybe, yes, 18 months ago yeah. uh, in just a year. That's fascinating. I mean, Pierre, you got a $225 price target. You got a buy recommendation. I mean, what, therefore, is the catalyst to get us from 165 to that 225? Is it articulation from Lisa Sue how they're going to end up seeing the rewards of the AI? That's a great question. Let me give you first what I look look at. My only question on Nvidia, on uh, sorry, on on uh, AMD's is execution. Does MI three hundred get into the hands of clients, and do these clients find it reasonably easy? Because it's never easy to ramp that new architecture uh, along with um, uh, with Nvidia. And if that happens, then it's like. My price target is actually probably far too, um, uh, you know, um, uh, cautious. Uh, so that's the way I would look at it. So between now and the end of this year, I want to hear feedback from uh, AMD clients. I want to see volumes ramping and people being like, yes, right. we, 
we are not using so much of these GPs, we are going to continue to use them. How the street looks at it is a bit different. I think there is an element of earnings momentum. And of course, on that, from that perspective, uh, embedded is, uh, is still, um, you know, uh, with, uh, with gaming in, in a down cycle, CPU is uncertain. And of course, everybody understands the upside on, uh, on GPU and people start putting up expectations that don't really, that are not like uh, on solid ground. And when expectations are too high, even if AMD talks about something fascinating happening this year, there is a bit of a technical disappointment. And that's the reason why the stock is yes. this week today. Uh, Pierre, in terms of what you still want to hear, and I would never ask you to do my job for me, but I am going to speak to Lisa Sue a little later on this morning. What is the question that's not been answered in this earnings cycle? What would you ask her? Uh, first, uh, say hello for me. And, uh, and, and the, the, question, uh, the question I would ask her uh, at, this, uh, uh, at this stage is when do you think you will have like a very strong visibility on whether your clients are comfortable ramping for the long run, for the long term, MI300 along uh, NVIDIA. It's like, it's probably too early to say. Um, does she need six months to, to have confidence in that? Does she need a year? I'm not too sure. We really appreciate you, Pierre, giving you a few little hints for Ed a little bit later with Lisa Sue. Pierre Faragou, we thank you so much. New Street Research Global Tech Infrastructure lead coming up. Well, we're going to be discussing Elon Musk's $55 billion pay package that is struck down by a Delaware judge. Up next, we'll speak with one of those key lawyers representing the shareholder who challenged the compensation and won. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE.
Musk's $55 billion Tesla pay package, but it's been struck down by a judge in Delaware. That's after shareholder Richard Tanetta challenged it as excessive. The, the ruling leaves the fortune of the world's richest man now kind of up in the air. He'll only be the third world's richest person. Cry, cry. Joining us now for more is Blue Moog's Max Chafkin and, of course, one of the lawyers for Richard Tanetta, Miss Greg Ferrello, who's from Bernstein, Litowitz, Berger and Grossman. Bloomberg reached out to Musk and his lawyer, Evan Chesler, but we have not received a response thus far. But, Greg, I turn to you. This was a long, hard-fought case, and I think, actually, the judge said, look, the defence tried very hard, but it was almost an impossible task. Will you expect an appeals now? Do you think that the board will go back and just try to restructure some sort of payment for Elon? Wouldn't surprise me at all if we saw an appeal. Uh, under Delaware practice, there is a direct appeal to the Delaware Supreme Court, which is the final word on matters like this. So it's likely there'll be an appeal. And Max, from Elon Inc., your expertise of all things. I mean, he has been avidly against Delaware more broadly. He clearly there has been concerns about, from Elon himself, a lack of control of his own company now. What do you think happens after this pay package? I mean, this is a huge development, not just because of the amount of money that is at stake in these options, the value of the options. I've seen, you know, figures as high as 50 billion reported. Of course, he hasn't exercised them yet. Um, but also because this kind of throws not just Tesla into chaos. They have to figure out a way to try to retain Elon Musk. He's already been sort of making these kind of veiled threats that he might be doing AI research outside of the company if he doesn't get a bigger pay package. Um, and then at the same time, you have all his other companies, which, of course, depend on his financing. And we remember one of the uh, kind of, uh, one of the reasons he wanted all this money, supposedly, was to pay for his, you know, Mars exploration. So you have to ask where, every, where all of this goes. Last thing I'll say is this is another big loss on Delaware. Remember, Delaware forced him to buy yeah. uh, Twitter for $44 billion. So now, even for the world's richest man, $44 billion, $50 billion, that's starting to add up. <laughs> Uh, Greg, good morning. It's Ed in, in San Francisco. As far as I can tell, you and your clients are the only ones to actually ever take a look at the compensation package. So as a starting point, Greg, what was it in the first place that, that worried you or, or that you thought was unusual about the package that caused you and your clients to look? You know, I, I have to say that I have a hard time articulating $55 billion. I often misspeak and say $55 million. $55 billion is such a large pay package that it basically skewed dramatically upward the entire data set for the compensation consulting industry. Um, <laughs> I think we put out a press release yesterday referring to it as a gargantuan uh, package. Um, let me start by saying it was so large that we looked at it specifically because no one had ever tried to come this close. And oh, by the way, when you look at the nearest comparable, it's Elon's prior pay package. Okay, but Greg, here's the thing. It may be the biggest compensation package in history, but there are a really large body of, of Tesla investors out there that say, so what? 73% of those investors voted in favor of the package in 2018 when it was awarded. And there is a big body of people out there, Greg, I hope you don't mind me saying, that are pretty mad at you and your client who are Tesla shareholders because they say, look at the share performance of Tesla since that package was awarded. Look at Tesla's position as the market incumbent in EVs and their growth globally in other products. Why does it matter? 
Well, you know, um, there's this idea in efficient capital markets that shareholders ought to have a say in things like this, and this package was, in fact, put to shareholders. But it was put to shareholders on a proxy that the court found to be materially misleading in several respects. And look, the bottom line is capital markets don't work if you don't tell stockholders material facts when asking them to take action. And that's exactly what happened here. Max, this puts into question the board in particular. The accusations from many an investor is that there is no pushback. The judge articulated there was at no point any sort of questioning that this pay package was ever perhaps excessive. What does it mean for the board of Tesla? Well, it's not clear to me. Uh, you know, it's, it's, as Ed is kind of hinting at, many Tesla shareholders were aware that the Tesla board of directors was essentially a, a rubber stamp, right? You have a lot of people who are uh, very close friends with Elon, and, and I think one of the reasons he lost this case is because you had nominally independent directors who were going on vacation with him and we had clear, clearly had uh, a close relationship with. Now, that's kind of like how Elon Musk has done business. And, and by Elon, what's, what's so, I think, difficult about this going forward um, is that that's kind of been, if you asked Elon Musk, like, what is your playbook? How have you been able to achieve so much? He would say, well, it's because I have a, you know, I've been able to do essentially whatever I want to do. And, and again, as I said earlier, he's been asking for even more control from where he got. So, so I don't know where that goes. I do think there is some piece of risk that probably didn't exist yesterday that Elon Musk could either threaten to or even, and again, I think this is a far off possibility, decide to walk away from Tesla. I mean, this is why the share price is somewhat under pressure, not massive moves, Greg, but the, the articulation from the judge was at no point did it seem that this 55 billion or these options awarded was necessary to keep Elon motivated. But then to that end, why not? recompense the leader, a founder, with such a significant upside if he's going to deliver for shareholders? Well, the judge made the point, I think, very cogently, and that is, I believe his net worth increased in increments of $10 billion based on the stock he already held without this pay package for each increment that was identified in this pay package. And so I think the judge's point of view was, if you look at other uh, successful founders, Bezos, uh, Zuckerberg, others, they don't take pay packages or they don't take any material pay package. They rely on driving value for their shareholders in their own underlying stock. Uh, Mr. Musk had the opportunity to, to increase his net worth by almost $100 billion. I have to stop and make sure I get the B right. $100 billion if he accomplished what he set out to accomplish under this pay package without getting a single option. And, you know, at the end of the day, this is a car company. It's not a space exploration company. And it's a public company. And public companies live by different rules than private companies. Right. If you're, uh, if you're watching us live now on Bloomberg Television and you're a Terminal subscriber, you can send questions to us via IB. Greg, I, I told our audience on social media you were coming on and that there were lots of questions. I think the most common is, is just a want for deeper understanding of what the pathway forward is. So you talked with Caroline about a, a likely appeal. I think my understanding from sources is that's likely as well. But the other thing is that this current board, which is different to what it was in 2018, could put together a new compensation plan. 
and then take it to, to shareholders to, to be ratified. How involved do you think you will be with your client? How involved do you think uh, Kathleen uh, J. McCormick will be in that process, if at all? Well, um, the simple answer to that is that's a question for the board to determine in the first instance. And assuming it fulfills its fiduciary duties and uses uh, ordinary and reasonable means to arrive at a result, my guess is I won't be involved at all. And my guess as well is the judge won't be involved at all. If the board comes out with a package which uh, either facially is ridiculous, gargantuan, or otherwise uh, raises concerns uh, from a fiduciary perspective, I suspect you'll see my firm and I uh, involved as well. Right, Max, there's so much to discuss here. I guess the board could also say, well, here's another $55 billion package. Looks yeah. different, same number. I mean, one thing I'm curious about, you know, Musk overnight was sort of threatening to leave Delaware and to reincorporate in uh, Texas, I believe, or, you know, I think X, uh, he moved from uh, Delaware to Nevada. Um, is that a re is that, can he do that? And, and is that like, like, will there be another uh, sort of, you know, tranche of lawsuits if it happens? Because shareholders were saying, oh, he's, he's He's just doing this to, to reduce our rights or something. So look, the simple answer to that is Musk can't do anything himself. That's a matter that the board has to decide in the first instance, and then it's presented to shareholders for a vote. If shareholders, upon the board's recommendation, decide to move to Nevada, they have a right to do that. But it's not a Musk decision. Let me also say that I'm not an expert in all 50 states' laws, but I suspect, I, get, I would guess, that even Nevada prohibits you from putting out misleading proxy statements. And that if Musk wants to go to Nevada and do the same thing, he's probably going to run into some, some problems there as well. It's this little idea of telling the truth. You know, it's, it's real basic. Right. <laughs> uh, hey, Greg, real quick, an audience question that I'm just going to read. Do you worry about changing the norms around Delaware corporate law away from non-intervention? That was a follow-on from what Max asked. We have about 30 seconds. No, uh, not at all. I think it's very important to recognize, and, and this is something that's deeply embedded in Delaware law, that every decision uh, is twice tested, both from a legal perspective and an equitable perspective. And when fiduciaries act in a way that's not equitable or in violation of their duties, um, you're squarely within the long tradition of the Delaware law to call them on that. I'd point out that Tesla had a sharp reaction after hours. It's now down just four-tenths of one percent. We thank Greg Verraro, lawyer at Bernstein, Littlewitz, Berger and Grossman, and of course, friend of the show, Bloomberg's Max Chafkin. Actually, I'm very bullish for the S&P 500. Not just for the Magnificent Seven. The enthusiasm for the Magnificent Seven will continue. As you look at the Mag Seven, you know, they're companies that have a, a broad exposure. I think semiconductors will continue to be strong. I think we have to look at areas like semiconductors where AI could drive a lot more demand going forward. I think 24 is, is really about differentiation. Some will be determined that they really aren't true AI beneficiaries. Some of them are right and some of them were wrong. Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. Ed Ludlow here in San Francisco. And in the markets context, this is what the session looks like right now in the moment. You can see the Nasdaq 100 softer by 1.4%. The earnings story, a big contributor to that. Microsoft off 1.3%. Despite delivering what was a strong quarter, there was evidence that AI made meaningful contributions to the top and bottom line, but it was a high bar quarter. Investors just wanted more. But largely, that was the positive story. More worrying, AMD, now softer 3%.
gave a worrying outlook for the current period. Remember, they go into lots of end markets where we're just not seeing the rebound we thought we would. But the AI story was strong, right? Their AI accelerator, MI300, they ramped production in the quarter to a reasonable volume and exceeded their sales guidance that they'd previously given. Investors still a little concerned. Um, then there's what's happening away from earnings in the media landscape. Uh, a big bid for Paramount from Byron Allen. That stock is now up 7.8%. It had been much higher. What about that conversation we were having, Caroline, about... Paramount and Warner Brothers Discovery. And then in the back of your mind, remember, somebody recently suggested that ESPN Plus goes on Netflix. Yeah. And, and Disney. what is happening here? One Nelson I think we have a good help. conversation coming up. Yeah, uh, So much to discuss. Weird. Activist investors meets desire to make some big bids on some TV assets. Let's return to the comedian-turned-TV media mogul, Byron Allen, because his latest take of a term is a massive one, Ed. $14 billion is offering for Paramount in a text. The media mogul made basically that offer for voting shares of the company and a 50% premium to recent trading, according to sources. Now, when you include existing debt of Paramount, total value of the deal, $30 billion. Here with more is U.S. media analyst of Bloomberg Intelligence, Geetha Ranganathan. And, I mean, ultimately, do you think this is a realistic deal? Byron Allen is known for making, well, waves in media landscape and headlines. But is this a realistic deal that he could follow through with? It's definitely a solid deal, Caroline. I mean, the, the premiums are solid. And this is really the first full cash bid that Paramount has received for all of the company. Having said that, though, I mean, you're absolutely right. Byron Allen has kind of been uh, in the thick of all of the media conversations, right? He's been uh, making bids uh, all over the place, whether it was for, you know, uh, Disney's linear assets, whether it was for BET, TV stations from Scripps. So I think it's still uh, the market, at least, I think, views this as pretty much a long shot uh, just kind of given that you know there there is a huge amount of debt as you pointed out uh, over 15 billion dollars paramount is one of the most levered companies in the media world over five times and financing is definitely going to be a problem especially in the current market environment uh, Gita, i want to do the math you're right 15.6 billion on the debt side the offer is 14 billion paramount's current market capitalization is 9.95 billion but, but I guess what I don't understand is, like, where's Byron getting this number from? What, where is the value? Forget the, the kind of risk on the debt side, but what is it that Paramount offers? All can be fixed. Paramount actually offers a lot. I mean, it, it is a very compelling collection of assets. One could argue that, yes, they do have a, a very heavy exposure to TV networks, you know, linear networks like the CBS Broadcast Network, like Nickelodeon, uh, you know, Comedy Central, which are all in secular decline. And, and remember, I mean, you know, uh, advertising every quarter, if you look at TV advertising, it's down about 10, 15 percent. Affiliate fees, again, down because of cord cutting, almost, you know, 8 to 9 to 10 percent of cord cutting is what we're seeing a quarter in and quarter out. So, yeah, it, I mean, it's definitely a tough landscape. But, but having said that, I mean, the, you know, the, the linear networks still throw out a decent amount of cash. But I think more importantly, uh, you know, is really the content assets. Uh, Paramount has an absolutely formidable content production arm, whether it is the film studio or the television studio. Uh, and that is really what a lot of the other suitors, I'm not necessarily sure whether Byron Allen is looking at the studio itself, but we know that you know Skydance Media, uh, backed by David yes. Ellison, has been very interested in, in Paramount and kind of combining it with Skydance, uh, as well as Apollo, and, and of course, Warner Brothers Discovery as well. Uh, Nickelodeon, blast from the past. When I was a kid, 
Rugrats, Wild Thornberries. That was my jam. And if you know what I'm talking about on social media, at me. I don't care. No shame there. U.S. media analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, Geeta Ranganathan. Nickelodeon. My goodness. Let's keep the conversation going and bring in Laura Martin, senior entertainment analyst at Needham. And let's get right to it. Byron, buying Paramount. Thoughts? Great. Fantastic for Paramount shareholders. This company is too small. It needs to be, have a different management team. I like the idea of splitting it up. It's worth more in pieces than together. We need new management here. Great idea. So, so this is a stock that you cover, and Caroline and I have been talking over recent days kind of broadly what's happening here. Um, you know, take into account this proposal that ESPN Plus from Nelson Peltz, according to Bloomberg sources, does something with Netflix. It, it's still an industry where they're trying to kind of right size and find the formula for profit, is, is at least my read on all this news flow. So on ESPN, I don't think Nelson Peltz will actually win his board seat, so I think ESPN will become, stay part of the Walt Disney Company. I think a far more interesting value-creative um, solution for ESPN is take, to get the NBA and the NFL to take pieces, like equity pieces, in ESPN, and they become, basically ESPN become the anchor tenant streaming, and, like linear and TV streaming for the leagues. That's a good idea, sort of like what Hulu used to be for entertainment. I think the professional sports league should do that with ESPN plus much better idea than what than selling it to Netflix just taking that step back Laura and the idea that M&A seems inevitable in 2024 in some way shape or form who become the key players left in your mind's eye who are the winners from all of this bigger you must be bigger so who you're competing with here is Amazon Prime Video and Amazon it never needs to make money from streaming. So that's your competitor. My opinion is Apple comes in eventually, but they're not really a serious player today. They spend $2 billion on content. And as we know, Netflix spends $17 billion without sports content. So these players are, the winners are going to be the Walt Disney Company, in my opinion. Either it gets bought or it's just big enough with enough um, fran IP franchises to, to win. Um, and I think Warner Brothers Discovery is like the dark horse. but. I got to tell you, Paramount is too small. There is no advantages to small size in this, in this war. What's interesting, Laura, is also we were originally bringing you on to talk about the earnings and the fact that we have, you know, advertising looking pretty good when you're looking at YouTube, for example, and Alphabet out there managing to still bring in the ad revenue when everyone really wants to hear about AI. But from your perspective, Laura, what is it that some of these tech companies and Alphabet, for example, can bring to the table when it comes to our own consumption of content? So I think, I think what's really interesting about um, Google's strategic position, Alphabet's strategic position, is YouTube is now the number one streamed entity. And um, YouTube advertising grew 16%. And they're now up to, we think, $3 billion in subscription revenue, which is sort of hidden in the other line. You have to sort of go digging. But they said they had 15 million subs uh, 100 million subscribers and $15 billion in subscription revenue last year. So this is another revenue stream sort of building up under the sheets and it's all video all the time youtube is and youtube tv with the nfl sunday ticket really really rapid adoption it's almost doubled their subscribers that product laura i guess going into the earnings and coming out of it it simply came down to understanding the ai story in a way that that google or alphabet demonstrates they can make money from all of this investment and chat do you now have a better understanding of that yeah, I think what's really interesting about, they said AI, 
67 times in their transcript, and they said generative AI 12. I think what's really interesting is their margins. They hired zero extra headcount. They grew revenue at 13% with no extra cost. So guess what's happening to free cash flow? Operating margins, margins went up 500 basis points to 27%. These companies that are now integrating generative AI and AI not only are having faster product innovation and product introductions, um, they're also cutting costs already. They're not using as many people. You keep seeing Alphabet you know, releasing statements saying it's cutting more people. This is all about automation. So my opinion is the, the, the faster companies adopt generative AI and machine learning AI, the faster costs go down because you're replacing people with machines. It's tough, but from a bottom line, it's positive. Laura Martin, it's so good to have you on the show, as always. We thank you just going the whole gamut of the media landscape with our senior entertainment analyst over at Needham. Stay well. Meanwhile, coming up, look, tech leaders, they've descended on Capitol Hill to testify at a Senate hearing focused on children's digital safety. We have so much more on this as we go live to Washington. That's next. This is Bloomberg Technology. There is a problem with accountability what if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Okay, tech CEOs across Meta, X, Snap, TikTok and more have descended on Capitol Hill to testify at a Senate hearing focused on children's online safety. Joining us live from Washington, Bloomberg's Alex Barinka. And in any of these hearings, you have to take the prepared remarks of the speakers, the CEOs themselves, and then see what happens with the line of questioning, which can sometimes be outside the scope of the brief. What have we learned so far? 
Well, so far, both the tech CEOs and the senators in the hearing room came uh, to the room with a lot of vigor for those prepared remarks. It started with Senator Durbin showing a somber video of victims who had experienced sexual exploitation online and went into Senator Graham telling Mark Zuckerberg, the CEO of Meta, and the other CEOs on the witness table inexplicably that they have, quote, blood on their hands. The hearing room erupted in applause. After those prepared remarks, we did get some new news um, from the likes of Linda Yaccarino, the CEO of X, who said that her company would be the first to support the Stop CSAM Act, an act that is meant to protect victims of uh, who have their sexual images uploaded online and expand uh, the reporting process for them with the tech companies. As we speak, the questioning is still going on, and some of those back and forths have gotten a little bit testy, um, particularly as we get into the day after the prepared remarks. All of this comes as bills and legislation is debated, but ultimately goes nowhere, Alex. Is there any sense that some sort of rules will change for ultimate liability for these companies? Or in general, is this more about self-regulation still? I can tell you, Senator Klobuchar had her seven minutes of questioning, and she had uh, quite an exasperated tone because she said this conversation has been going on for more than a decade now. She had a really pointed statement. She talked about the uh, the issues with the Boeing planes, saying if we have a piece of a plane fall off and threaten lives, we ground those planes. If there are children dying from interactions online by suicide or by coming in contact with sexual predators, why aren't we doing that? So that exasperation is, is certainly felt from the, in the members um, on both sides of the aisle, but we did hear folks like Republican Senator Lindsey Graham come to the table today saying Republicans are happy to come to the table. Meanwhile, there is kind of um, folks across the aisle who have bills in motion. That being said, we've seen bills before that aim to rein in the power of big tech. When there are children's lives and children's safety on the line, uh, perhaps this is the moment that they can actually get things over the line. Alex, kind of in parallel and adjacent to this, Bloomberg's reporting uh, with regards to Meta that previously some executives went to Mark Zuckerberg and said, we need to hire more people focused on child's online safety in terms of headcount. And that proposal was rejected by Zuckerberg. What's the story there and what is the company's response then? Sure, and I actually heard from Senators Blackburn and Blumenthal yesterday before the hearing who talked about these emails uh, that the committee is releasing in accordance with this hearing. They're from around the, the time of September 2021 from a letter from those two senators in response. Nick Clegg, Meta's head of policy, basically came to Mark Zuckerberg saying, hey, I have a plan here for additional investment in wellness. It's very important. It's a top issue and we're having outside pressure. Can we look at this plan and invest in it? Those emails went unanswered for a number of months, and ultimately that investment was pushed back upon. I do expect the senators will bring this, this idea up today and query Mark Zuckerberg himself and you know pose the question, why haven't we seen additional investment? You have so many engineers, so much headcount. In 2021, you hired more than 10,000 people. Why isn't there more being done to protect kids on Meta's platforms? Alex Barinka, we thank you for bringing us the latest on the reporting and indeed the questioning that's going on on the Hill right now. We want to stick with that hearing and ultimately what policy could potentially come from it. The Centre of Humane Technology Policy Director, Camille Carton, joins us now to really discuss where they think real change can happen to protect children on social media and what these hearings really mean for big tech. Ultimately, Camille, what, if any, policy can be put in place 
to ensure that children are that little bit safer. We can't cure humanity, but we can potentially hope that we put some barriers in place, whether it's technology or indeed just policy more broadly. Yeah, absolutely. I think we're at a point, as everyone has said so far, where we are happy that these hearings are happening because the public needs to see it, but we're also at the point in our democratic process where it's time to push forward change. And some of the things that we look for in bills, specifically around kids' safety, are three main pillars. We want a duty of care, which essentially means just like a doctor has a fiduciary responsibility to ensure that patients um, are treated in their best interest, we want platforms to ensure that kids are not harmed on their platforms. We want privacy by default. This means if a kid goes onto Instagram, the moment they sign up, they have all of their settings at the highest level of privacy. It means that they won't get messages from people that they're not friends with, their profiles won't be able to seen, be seen by extra people, and we want safety by design. We want no more addictive features, features that are known to be harmful to kids that platforms continue to utilize because it keeps them on longer. And going back to that privacy focus, now some companies, I think of one in France, Yubo, that came on to the show last week, saying how ultimately you can use technology as a force for good here. You can have some sort of ability to really age appropriately who really is part of using that system. But then privacy comes into it. How do you allow the camera to identify whether a child is indeed the age they say they are without in some way impacting their own privacy? How do you see technology being the sole fear? Yeah, I think that that's a great point. But part of what's missing is that these companies already have age estimation tools that they use to know the age of their users. I mean, one thing that came out of the AG lawsuit that's happening across 41 states is the fact that Meta knows that it has millions of users under the age of 13 on its platform and it's keeping that knowledge from the public so they know this and they use their estimation tools to actually target against these kids and to target advertising to age ranges so we actually don't need new technology companies already have this information we just need them to enforce it Camille, I, I still go back to the idea that when this Senate hearing is finished, what comes out of it? Because many of the social media companies have codified policy, right? So if you take TikTok as an example, they have restrictions on age. I think 13 is the barrier to using TikTok. Um, and, and, and those are policies. The, the question seems to be on enforcement. And as Caroline rightly points out, either a lack of or use of technology to enforce those policies. And I just wonder what your perspective is on policy versus action. Yeah, I think the fundamental difference that we're talking about, though, is self-regulation policy by these platforms, which is where we're at right now, as opposed to regulation that's codified in law. So these platforms at any moment can change their terms and conditions. And what we're seeing right now is that they release features that folks have been asking for for years ahead of a big PR moment. And that's great. We want, you know, we want these better features, but releasing these features because of a PR moment is no substitute for regulation that incentivizes safe innovation and age-appropriate strategies from the beginning. Camille, Pinterest's CEO, Bill Reddy, has an op-ed in The Hill this morning likening the social media industry to big tobacco. That is something I've heard before. Why do you think social media companies would do something like that? Are they trying to get in the psyche of lawmakers and show that they're on the same wavelength or something like that? 
Well, I think every social media company and the ways in which they utilize their products are different. Pinterest has a different business model and a different position than other social media companies. We've seen that with Snap coming out and endorsing the Kids Online Safety Act. Now with X coming out and endorsing CSAM. They're all taking slightly different positions, but I think the main takeaway here is that we're starting to see them come to the table. There's overwhelming support by parents, by AGs. I mean, schools are suing these platforms. And I think that they're realizing that the time is up of this move fast and break things mentality. And we need to come to the table and figure out exactly what a path forward looks like. And that path does require regulation in the same way that we had to have with tobacco. Okay, as we say, the hearing's ongoing. Senator Ted Cruz using props behind him. You can tune into that hearing for the full details. Center for Humane Technology Policy Director, Kimil Colton. Fantastic conversation. Thank you. Time now for going, what's going viral. TikTok may find itself without music from thousands of artists represented by Universal Music Group. UMG has issued an open letter to the ByteDance-owned company condemning it for offering unfair terms during licensing negotiations. Now, UMG is posting on X that it must call time out on TikTok. Ed, this is about TikTok saying, look, you get free promotion for your stars by the music on TikTok, but UMG saying you're using AI that is going to ultimately take away the power of our own artists. I go to what Satya Nadella said on that NBC interview in the context of them and the New York Times. It's going to come down to intellectual property versus fair use. Mm. And that's a different medium, music, but that's the case. Yeah, City Group saying, look, these are going to be difficult negotiations, but actually I think UMG is taking the right stance. The best, it secures better terms. The worst, looks like they protect their artists. That does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology, Ed. Check out the pod. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.